I craved working really hard. I craved like do it again, do it again, do it again. So there was never any like yelling or kind of dragging me through these programs. I, I like actively sought it for myself. I've been fortunate enough to have really good and supportive coaches who understand like the human development outside of the athlete. And so I, I never was accelerated, so to speak. They, I think most of them just saw like, hey, here's a young, talented kid. So if we're going to do this, we're going to do it correctly. That's Josh Dixon. He's a Stanford alum and former senior national team member. I'm Pam Jumdar, and you're listening to Better Late, the podcast about adult gymnastics. I've had a lot of listeners ask me to interview a male NCAA gymnast, so I was super excited when Josh agreed to be on the show. It is quite common to see male gymnasts compete into their mid-20s and beyond, and to use the NCAA as a launching pad. It's what women's gymnastics needs to look more like. Josh's story is a fascinating journey from J.O. to NCAA to the senior national team, and he's continued to be a vocal advocate for sports, fitness, and beyond. And as you'll hear on this episode, he's definitely not afraid to state his opinion. Disclaimer, if you have kids or find strong language offensive, there's a bit of it in this episode. If you like this show, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe and consider giving a five-star rating. It helps other people find it and brings in new listeners. I'd love to be able to publish more than one episode a week, host more meets, and so much more. So if you love what you're hearing, please continue sharing episodes, sending guest suggestions, and telling your friends about Better Late. Someone recently asked me if I plan to continue this podcast into the long term, and the short answer is yes, and so much more. There's a lot to change in the world of gymnastics, and I hope you're along for the ride. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this episode. The gymnastics world, I've been out of it for, what, since 20, the end of 2016, so it seems like forever ago, and uh, I'll, I'll still catch glimpses of what some of the guys and girls are doing, and it's, it's just quite remarkable the level in which they're all competing and I was like oh man like my body and mind was done in 2016 <laughs> I can't even imagine like the rigor and like just what anyone has to go through now especially you have to like risk your life some, <laughs> with some of these skills and routines like holy crap like this is insane but um that's also the beauty of the sport it's so untouchable at that level it's just so mesmerizing I did read a lot about you and obviously I know who you are, but I'd love if you would, can you talk about your gymnastics background and journey, like how you got started and mm. how old were you when you started? And then you know, like your journey to the NCAA and beyond. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty standard, I guess. I, I have two older sisters. They both did gymnastics. Frankly, we both, we all did every sport. We're just a very athletic, active family. And I would just, I would see what they were doing in practice or they would come home. We had, we had a huge backyard and they would set up these mats and try some of the stuff. And so I, I was like, oh, hey, like, yeah, I can do that. And, and I can do it better. And plus I would see it on TV, like world championships, Olympic games. And just like, oh my God, this is really cool. So I think at one point I went to an open gym and one of the, boys team coaches was like who is this kid just running around throwing crazy stuff and kind of from there it was oh let's put him in a class and see what it looks like um oh actually he listens to instruction very well and kind of just doesn't have fear 
and then progressed from there. I, I remember very quickly, like nine, 10 years old, having the discussion with my parents of like, oh, Josh, are you sure you want to go train with the older boys? Like it's, it's four hours a day, 5.30 to 9 p.m. Like, are, are, are you sure you're okay with that? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I, and I couldn't get enough. And they probably thought I was insane at that point. And then kind of just progressed through the, the U.S. has a Future Stars program where it's their pipeline to the junior national team. Um, I just remember very quickly moving into that pipeline and, oh, all of a sudden you're competing at a national championship. You're competing. A couple, I think I was, I was always young for my age group. Like it was a two-year split and I was always on the youngest side of it. And then progressing into like the optional levels. Uh, I think it was called class three at that time. Progressing into that an age early and having the opportunity to compete in a, a final round, so to speak, at my first JO Nationals for where you can make a junior Olympic team. Uh, I didn't make it, but it was a good, it was a good, like, oh, hey, this is, this is the level that you want to get to if you want to really see an Olympic Games or make, make your goal of what you see on TV. The next year did very well. And oh, now I'm, now I'm in the group of one of 14 guys that are on the junior national team level. And then from there it was, oh yeah, we got to train a lot. We got to, we, you are nothing in comparison to the rest of these guys around the country. Cause it was my first foray into like, Oh wow. Like these, these kids in Texas, they literally eat, sleep, breathe gymnastics. And like my parents did a very good job making sure I had a social life and going to school and the importance was always on academics. And so it, it just opened my eyes to, this is a very competitive and cool and fun landscape. And there's a bunch of people operating at a higher level. So knowing that going into practice every day, okay, we're going to maximize the opportunity. We're, we're doing it a different route, but the talent and work ethic is there to get to where you want to go. You mentioned that as soon as you really started in an official program, they noticed that you were hardworking, followed instruction well, and had talent. And I'm curious about, as you did progress through the levels, I've talked to a lot of guests who are former elites. And one thing that has come up for the women, at least, is if they had talent, they were kind of really accelerated very quickly. Like some of them going through levels like two or three a year because they wanted to to get the these young girls to mm -hmm. the national level as soon as possible. Was that your, did you feel like that was your experience that you were accelerated really quickly? At, well, it does sound like your parents did a great job of making sure that what you're doing was in a balanced way. Yeah. Their, their priority was always like, are you having fun? And let's not get too crazy with it because you are a child. <laughs> and also making it known to me that like, Hey, Josh, this is your decision. We're not, we're not going to force you into anything. The only thing we're going to mandate is your education. So if you're not going to school, you're not going to practice. <laughs> that, that, that was first and foremost. So they, that kind of uh, perspective was made known very clear um, and very early to me. Homeschooling wasn't an option that your parents. Oh, hell no. No, my, I come, I come from a family of educators. So that was not a route 
or, or a, a need. Like California has a pretty good public education system, um, especially the community in which I'm from. So that that route wasn't really on the table. It was intriguing to me because I wanted to get really good. So I was like, oh, like maybe if we did the homeschool like these Texas kids, like and my parents were like, no, no, non-starter, try again. But in terms of coaching and progression, I don't think I was pushed quickly through level. I think the saving grace in that was that I was really young. I was always competing or training at an age up only because I think mentally I could, like I, I craved working really hard. I craved like do it again, do it again, do it again. So there was never any like yelling or um, kind of dragging me through these programs. I, I like actively sought it for myself. So, and I, I've been fortunate enough to have really good and supportive coaches who understand like the human development outside of the athlete. Um, so I, I never was accelerated, so to speak. They, I think most of them just saw like, Hey, here's a young, talented kid. So if we're going to do this, we're going to do it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. It sounds like you didn't necessarily, although I know you didn't quite get to the part where you started competing in college, but did you feel burnout at all before maybe you hit the the college scene? Because that honestly has been a trend that I've formerly female gymnasts that I've mm-hmm. had on the podcast, even some like internationally, they talked about how the NCAA experience rejuvenated something and really changed their perspective on, hey, gymnastics can be fun. Fun. Yeah. Um, no, I, I really never did. The kind of the pressure point for me was in high school. I started growing. I, w- I was very short. I think I entered high school like five, five, four, very, very, very short. And I started growing sophomore, junior year, right when it's like, oh, like this is when you're supposed to make the junior national team at the age group level to be seen by these colleges. And I was just having a very difficult time frankly, just keeping up with the physicality of the sport. It's like, oh, wow, I shot up four inches in one year. Immediately, I can't do a lot of the stuff or it's harder for me. Um, And also just physically being a late bloomer, I was still growing in college. And so the, the pressure point was, or the burnout point was, not even burnout, I would say pressure. Like, oh, shoot, like, how do I in a very short period of time, manage later physical development as a guy and continue my gymnastics looking good. Because if I'm, if I'm now weak, cause I'm a little bit longer, that's going to, there's a transition period there. And my coach recognized that, Oh, Hey, like, okay, this kid's a late bloomer and he's going to be taller than most gymnasts. So the smartest course of action is to make him as technically solid as possible. And then in college, he'll get strong and his body will endure. It'll keep it fun for him. He can still be clean and like have the tools for getting really good in college. So there's really no need to try and push, oh, you're going to enter college as one of the best collegiate athletes. Let's just, let's create the foundations. Oh yeah, you're really good. You're still on the national team, but we don't need to try and burn you out before you get 
to the next kind of entry point where guys specifically start to level up simply by way of that's when they start to get really strong. I'm curious about, because this is obviously with women, I think it's very rare to stop or to continue growing after a certain point. I think I reached five foot one at 14 and I just have never grew an inch since, mm. since then. When, how old were you when you kind of like maxed out, you stopped getting taller? Um, I would wow. say probably like 19 or 20. Mm. I, I'm pretty sure I was still growing in college. Um, yeah, I would say probably 19, 20 years old, I growth was done. And then like just physically, I, I noticed like, oh, wow, I, like I'm stronger. Like I, I couldn't even hold a cross until maybe my second year in college. So my upper body strength was not there. Legs, that was fine. I could do anything floor vault needed, um, but just upper body maturation and just physical strength and growth that stopped the end of my ju- end of my sophomore year in college. Okay. Do you think, is that, is that common among males um, to just continue growing until I guess like the average is like 18 from if what I know, like most men like, you know, but even so it, it's definitely, the average is definitely higher than it is for women in terms of, you know. Yeah. I would say about 18 is what you typically see. And then you see the guys start to fill out. And then one year in college, they're completely shredded. It's like, oh, whoa, like (laughs) guys do mature in their early 20s in this sport. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know that there's a lot of like the mainstream narrative will keep even today, despite a person named Simone Biles, they will still say in the media that a women, a, a female gymnast peaks at 16 and mm-hmm. maybe the ideal height is between 4'10 and 5'2. I'm not aware. Is, is, do you think that, is there a similar narrative for men where like a certain height is ideal or a certain age is seen as ideal? Um, height, I can very much speak to because I was literally a giant on our national team or even the collegiate team, the height is a very real thing in the sport, especially the men's side of things, because there are six, six different apparatus where like, there's a very specific body type at the highest level of floor. You can handle if you're normal size and evenly proportioned pommel horse. Typically you need like toothpick legs, uh, strong but lankier upper body and a, a long torso. Um, that's different now because people are incorporating a lot of flare, like Thomas Flare circle. So it's a, you can get away with the non traditional pommel horse body, but then you move to rings and it's okay, you need guys with T Rex arms and again, toothpick legs and a really short torso. And then you go to vault and typically it's the shorter stocky guys, but still enough upper body strength to push off the horse. So that lends itself to a different body type. Then you move to parallel bars. If you're tall, you're just, it's very hard (laughs) because at the international level, you can't, you can't raise the bars up in college. I think you were able to move them up one more. But now that parallel bars looks a lot more like high bar, uh, 
when you're really tall, that's really hard and you're, you're just having to work harder. So your, your shoulders and joints take a pounding on that event by itself. And then if you're tall, it makes it exceptionally difficult. And then high bar, the longer, leaner guys look better because you can present a very clean and different line. So that, that event lends itself to you can be on the taller side. Then again, if you're like that short, stocky guy for a ring, like having short arms typically isn't conducive to being really good on high bar because of the some of the elements where you got to stoop your legs through your arms. And it's like, oh, shoot, like my arms are literally tiny and it's, it's harder to do. So for guys, height actually makes a huge difference in how high you can go on certain equipment at the like world Olympic level, even the, the national team level. Uh, in college, you'll see a different, there's a lot of taller guys in the collegiate program, um, but a lot of the shorter guys are kind of weeded out just by virtue of physically, this is what is most conducive to this event. And then to get really good at this event, there's pretty narrow uh, list of prerequisites physically that are required to really get up there. Just for um, perspective. So would, what would be considered like when you're starting to hit like the tall range, is it be like five, seven or even taller? trying to think of the guys now i would say like yeah five seven is your your tall most of the guys are like five five four five 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 six yeah five five seven you're pushing it five eight five nine five ten how tall are you okay i am five ten and a little oh wow Yeah. Well, thank you for, for talking me through that. It's fascinating because I obviously watch men's gymnastics, but I, I didn't really know a lot right. about the physicality behind it. So, so like, for example, Alexei Namov, two brilliant champions, Alexei Namov, taller, leaner, just evenly proportioned guy. He can present a perfect, elegant line, very simple for comparing it to women. Uh, Nastia, like elegant almost ballet type movement and then but also dynamic but he just by sheer arms and levers would be very hard pressed to become as strong as like a Kohei Uchimura on rings like just certain strength moves on rings just by virtue of oh my arms are this long like it's very difficult for someone of that proportion not to say they can't be the best in the world because he achieved that but now the craft of gymnastics, it's almost very specialized to your body type at the highest level. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. Was it just a given that you definitely wanted to go the NCAA route? And, you know, how did you choose your school and, um, mm. and how did that happen? Yeah, I was, it was 100% that I wanted to and would. It was just a matter of where. Um, and unfortunately the NCAA for the men's, for the men's artistic gymnastics is very small. You have a, you, you don't have that many options. And I, I was on the national team at that time. So I, I had my choice, but I was like, okay, I, where do you want to go and get good? Because 
like I, I know I'm pretty good at the sport and I know I'm willing to work to get to where I want to go. I looked at all of the military academies just because from an education standpoint, it's one of the top educations you can get. Um, I was very familiar with the Cal program just because my club coach competed there. A lot of the club gym guys that I competed with in Northern California went there and were going there. I was very familiar with the coaches. I had worked with them. I looked at Michigan and then Stanford, obviously being in my backyard was, Oh, the name brand of Stanford can pull anyone. And I I really didn't know much of anything about that program. I competed there every year uh, as a club athlete. You would just see these guys come out and they would do some amazing stuff during the collegiate meet. And it was so inspiring to see, okay, what, what is this program? Who are these guys? Like who's coaching them? It was almost like a, a mystery to me. And so it's going to sound weird, but like that was the most uncomfortable option. I obviously had to go through the application process. It's very different on the recruiting side because academics and your scholastic capabilities are always first and foremost, no matter if you are Olympic champion at age 18, it's like, can you mentally keep up here? And can you withstand the academic just onslaught of, can you keep up? So that was, that kind of delayed my decision process because I had to see if I got into the school, got in, and then it was actually the most uncomfortable program because I knew nothing. I Two guys that I competed with at the junior level went there and I saw them become good, but I, I didn't know the coaches. I didn't know. Um, I hadn't worked very closely with any of the guys that ended up going there and competing. So there's lots of question marks. I was like, okay, let's go get the answers to these questions. And it's a great educational institution. So here we go. And other benefit was those 25 minutes from home. So if there was any homesickness, there is a mom and dad and family were right down the road. But to their credit, when I was there, they did a very good job being hands off. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's, that's important um, when you're trying to forge your way as a as an adult in yeah. college. But at the time, I was 17. Like I, I entered college at 17 years old. Oh. And I, I remember going to one of our first eligibility meetings for the NCAA and it's like, hey, and it was a student athlete auditorium. Anyone here under the age of 18, your parents have to sign all your stuff. And I was the only one to raise my hand. I was like, oh, whoa, like we're, we're with the big boys now and big girls. And like, I'm such a baby deer in the headlights here. (laughs) It's funny. Yeah. So I, I read an interview you did last year with uh, Team USA Mm. um, and I found it really interesting. And I wanted to ask you about, you talked a little bit about your training in college. You talked a little bit about coaching uh, or learning under coach Brett McClure and now, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you had a bit of a shift in how you approach training once you got to mm-hmm. college. So I believe in the article you said at the time I was kind of relying on talent and not forging your way through a bad day. Remember, mm-hmm. I did not know how to handle or accept bad days of training. It was either perfect or nothing. 
I didn't understand the amount of work needed to be really good at redefining and developing your craft. The way you talked about it seems like a very thoughtful, methodical way to approach training. Did that shift come because of a shift in training at the NCAA, whether through coaching or just being in a different atmosphere? Yeah, there, there's a bunch of things that facilitated that, that shift in how I was approaching my sport. And I have to start this kind of piece with coach J.D. Reeve, who is the coach at Iowa, because coming into the Stanford program, we had groups. We very specifically had training groups. Tom, the head coach, had his group, which were the older guys, juniors, seniors, who were, had already been through the program, um, show David Sender. They were, they were the top guys in the country. And here is JD coaching this group of six. And for the, frankly, the first two years, when did Brett come in? First three years, JD was my personal coach, like Tom and the head coach, or Tom slash the head coach was not my coach. It was JD Reeve. He coached my, my group, my team. And he was a lot of the method behind the success within our Stanford program, because to the day he had mapped out and charted training blocks very seriously, strength cycles, training cycles, like so OCD. So he, he kind of instilled, okay, here's the program. Now let's buy into it and let's work through it. So he was the, for all intents and purposes, and anyone who's been through that program will say the same thing. He is the mastermind behind the massive success we had for that period of time. So getting comfortable in that, and it was tough love all the way from, from day one, because coming in, I was just very dramatic about everything, like cr literally crying, just if things didn't go my way in practice, I just didn't understand, well, why am I going to go through it if, it if it doesn't look right? Why am I going to do six sets of this or six or 12 or eight or 16 or some ridiculous number of skills when everyone in this room knows that just physically I'm so beat down or we're in a struggle training block or training week? Like why would I do that? It's going to look like crap anyway. But it's the kind of change in mindset of like you need to forge and push your way through. In practice, you can fail as many times in practice as possible so that when you're pressure tested, you've been through every scenario possible. And it took me a while to understand that. And even frankly, through the first NCAA championships, I was just so oblivious to what was going on. I think the numbers and the training that we did helped me through a very successful freshman year. Um, but I just remember competing at home is really loud. I was like, okay, like, let's just do routine, have fun. Still didn't really know what was going on, but the, the numbers and just drilling down really helped me through. Sophomore year was when I was, my eyes were open to kind of, this is the expectation now of our team. And this is the expectation of Josh Dixon and was not mentally prepared to handle what that was or was placing everyone else's or my perceived expectation of what people were wanting or looking for from me and not just silencing that as well as navigating the transformational period of life that is college and coming out and understanding 
my sexuality and yada, yada, yada. So JD facilitated all of that from, Hey Josh, like here's a sports psychologist. We're doing this training and fine tuning for our bodies and our craft. Like what's to say you shouldn't be doing it for your mind and talking through anything non-gymnastics related. And he really takes an interest in developing the person outside of the sport. And so kind of end of junior year, beginning of senior year, came to that realization myself, came out, was dating someone um, in a different sport. But immediately kind of all of that emotional weight was gone and was in the stage where it's like, oh, I the past seems very clear, non-dramatic, non, almost non-emotional to a degree of here's the work, here's the program. And it's now up to you to get to where you want to go. And ultimately, you're going to be contributing at a very high level, if not the highest level, to this program. And we're here to win national championships. So kind of going that first two and a half years of JD really being patient with my own personal development, as well as not letting that process impede on developing me as a gymnast, he balanced that perfectly. Because um, I, I, even I will say at times I was just the worst or a handful in training as an athlete. And then when Brett stepped in, I had the tool set. JD had gone to go coach at Iowa. So I, I knew he had prepared me for that next step where Brett, being an Olympian, being one of the greatest gymnasts in the United States history, came in with what woke me up even more was like he he didn't understand why fear would hinder someone's physical capability of like oh like why why aren't you doing this why aren't you adding an extra twist why aren't you laying it out why aren't why aren't we trying this skill and kind of just the literal no emotion of how you need to compete at an at an Olympic level seeing him just expect more I was like, oh, shoot. Okay, yeah. Like you say jump, I say how high was kind of the ready, set, go. And that was that was my senior year at Stanford. And we did, that was the first year I moved up to the senior national team at the U.S. level. And obviously our our collegiate team was pretty ridiculous at that time. It was, it was, um, we, we were really good. Like it was, we had to, I think every Thursday or Wednesday or Thursday prior to competition, there was an internal competition or pressure test just to see who that group of six per event was going to be at the competition. And it's like, we don't know. It was given and much respect for all of our teammates of like, hey, we don't care if you just scored the top number in the country last week. If you can't deliver in this, mock meet or like say I was very good at floor Josh if you fall like there's five guys just as good and waiting and so we had gone through every pressure scenario in training so that when we step onto the floor as a team we we just know like here we go these guys earned it we're all here for the same mission and vision of this program and now this is fun because we know we know we're just that good. And the running joke was like some other 
and this is this might sound bad, but uh, at this point, I don't, I don't care because one, I'm removed from it, and two, we we earned it. In terms of start values and difficulties, some other programs, like their their top guy, would be the six point four star value, yada yada yada. And one of the guys on our team was like six four, like that's our opening act. <laughs> and even at even at NCAA's, it was the between day one and day two, we had a few mistakes, and coverage was asking our coach and us like, "Hey, are you guys going to water it down and take it easy just to ensure the win?" And Tom very clear, "No, like we're actually ramping it up. Like Tim's adding an extra twist. We're doing this. Like we're we're ready to just take this because we've prepared and have done the work to." kind of celebrate how good this team is. So yeah, that was uh that was my experience in the collegiate program. Wow. I mean that's that's really fascinating. And I've never honestly like even even for women's NCAA, I don't really know how the training process works. I think a lot of the media that you see around NCAA women is focused on like how on the floor routines that go viral. And I mean rightfully mm. so because they're a joy to watch, but I don't know much about the training nuance. But it sounds like you, all the training processes you, that you described and focusing on the human outside of the athlete sounds very different from maybe what a lot of gymnasts experience at the junior Olympic level. And, and I'm actually curious about, because after you graduated Stanford, you did continue then in like mm-hmm. the, that you made the senior national team. And I know you competed at Olympic trials in 2016, I, be, I believe that was. Uh, 12 was in, where were 12 trials? Is that HP, HP arena in, uh, San Jose and then 2016? No. Okay. Okay. But you, so you did continue after college and I'm curious if the NCAA training structure for men is kind of woven with the expectation that many of the athletes will then continue their careers on the senior national team. It is. It very much is. It is a. Okay. It is the feeder program to the United States mm. national team, world team, Olympic team, because just physically, the demands of the men's, the men's game, the men's sport, like you're, it is. You are such an anomaly if you can handle physically at 18 years old, which we saw with very few athletes like Donnell Wittenberg, um, John Orozco. You'll get the freaks out of nowhere, but going through that kind of maturation process and then understanding the work and then understanding the pressures and being, you're tested every week during a collegiate season. You're competing sick. You're competing on the road. You're competing at home. You're competing with the expectation of your, your team and your university and kind of the legacy of the program. So the, that prepares you for the U.S. program, which, I mean, it, it, it's great, but it's it's not as team-oriented as any collegiate program and kind of that unity feel, because the hardest part about the United States program is getting out of the United States. Like, it's so competitive that just making the team domestically is the goal, and at that juncture, it's very, it's, it's it's not self-serving, but it's it's an individual pursuit. Yeah. And I think that's so fascinating just because on the women's side, um, and I only, I keep going back to that because that's, that's what I know. And to be honest, most of my guests 
have ended mm-hmm. up being women. So we talk about that mm-hmm. a lot. It's it's really the opposite where a, a female NCAA gymnast then going back to the senior national team is just is the anomaly. And I kind of wish it it weren't because then you might not see all these um, problems of burnout or, you know, other issues that female gymnasts in this country have, have had to address. So. Yeah. We we saw it with like uh, Mahini Bahardwaj, Anna Lee, Vanessa Zamaripa, who like so good. Uh, Who else? I'm not really familiar with girls past, I mean, frankly, even Alicia Sacramoni, Chelsea's doing it now. But yeah, that and there are there are a bunch of older girls, old, older women who are capable of doing it. Mm-hmm. What I think you spoke to so perfectly is the burnout of, oh, okay, I was in elite or I was in club, turned elite, the fun got sucked out of it, mentally drained, physically just exhausted. You go through maturation and like puberty and okay, your body is, your body is literally different, but you're still able to handle the fun is brought back into it in collegiate programs. But then in the headspace of, Oh, does me pursuing an Olympic dream as a woman, does that mean I need to go back into the brainwashed junior club athlete that's just tortured, has a tortured existence and as young and naive that that was the accepted practice. And as a, as a grown ass woman, you're like, hell no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I, I think that's that. changing. I think that's changing. I think it is. But something, something I've thought about like is another kind of effect of accelerating girls, young women through the elite program is that they have to decide if they're, they get all these opportunities to, you know, do sponsorships for mm. 18. So, you know, I think about like Jordan Weaver and she like turned pro and then like her Olympic career didn't, I mean, it was fantastic, but you know, still like she didn't, Yeah. she didn't, you know, she, I don't want to, I don't want to say it. Cause like she, I just, she did really well, but then she didn't want to continue that route, but the college route was also no longer an option because she wasn't an option. Yeah. Pro. Whereas for men, I'm assuming like you could, if you had wanted to, well, you would have been able to do your NCAA career and then turn pro, right? Like you could, cause you can do it in that, in that order. Right. Or does that, mm-hmm. so, yeah. and it's, it's terrible because you're kind of like for women, for girls, you're kind of cutting yourself off from these options at an age where you have no idea. Like Vanessa mm-hmm. Adler went pro, I believe right around like 15. Cause I remember she did that like Reese's commercial in 96. I still, <laughs> I still remember that. And like, mm. And that's like, you know, you're just banking on being able to make it to the Olympics because then if you don't make the Olympics, like, unfortunately, they're probably... You're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a whole lot that I unfortunately feel that in this country, like female gymnasts have in the elite junior Olympic program had to deal with that the guys just don't just because, like you said, it's a feeder into and I think it is changing and certainly like gymnasts like Chelsea Memel and others. And I, I think, I'm not sure if she said anything, but I think Nia Dennis mentioned that she may, you know, consider now trying like on the senior national team and like pursuing the Olympics. So I think it definitely is something that more female gymnasts are considering, but 
you're right. If the only option is then to go back to the, the way things have been done in, in the previous program, like why would they, why would they want to? Yeah. Mentally, you're just not in a, you're, you're way, you operate at a way higher levels of just like, why would I subject myself to a program that here are the stipulations of even consideration for a national team or an Olympic team. Um, Frankly, it's like, oh, what? like I'm, I'm better than that as a, as a human being. And there is a way to be good that doesn't require that, which girls in the program have done to a degree. But yeah, it's interesting. And then in terms of, in terms of the pro route versus like staying amateur or a non-sponsored athlete, I am always from the school of thought of that your education like is the great equalizer. Mm-hmm. But yeah, okay, if we can consider it of let's go pro. And this is where it's very dependent upon your parents and your coaches and like if you have an agent and people who are actually looking out for your your national governing body of okay, hey, hey great, you're going to go pro. Here's the window. This is let's look at the worst case scenario of you're relevant for one year, sponsors da 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 da. Can you pull in million dollars two million dollars because your education is going to be 60 grand a year so times that by four add on a fifth year can you make that in sponsors and if not that's how we need to be positioning it to sponsors of olympic athletes are only relevant especially in gymnastics every four years so like from a fiscal responsibility like someone should be looking out for hey let's just say this girl breaks her foot at the Olympics and is subbed, subbed in, like has she developed the platform where she's still making money because we know that NCAA is already off the table, whereby she can still have the collegiate experience in terms of going and meeting new people and being a young adult between the ages of 18 and 22, which are very transformational periods of life. Have we positioned her to just pay for that? with a collegiate existence. Yeah, unfortunately you won't be able to compete, but we knew that going in. But like with what Jordan did, very actively, and I, I don't know Jordan well, uh, we were on tour. Uh, I know Chris is in, Chris Brooks is in a relationship with her right now. I, I don't know Jordan well, but she's a, also a, a perfect case study of, she knew where her passions were stayed involved, went through the collegiate program of academics, wasn't able to compete, but refound through kind of the coaching side, refound that love for the sport. So there is a way to do it, but it, a lot of it just boils down to your, who, who are the supporting characters in your, in your life or in your program? Frankly, that's where, okay, let's just say it's not in your life or not in your immediate family or coaching. Like this is when the adults at either the sponsors or USA gymnastics or the university program, like, Hey, like where's your mind for, okay, let's say you go through one Olympic cycle. Let's say you go through two Olympic cycles. Like where, where are you going to go after that? Cause you'll be 22. Um, let's start thinking about that so that, you're not effed when things don't come to fruition and 
you only had a couple hundred thousand dollars in contracts and blah, 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 blah. But then there's the whole other discussion about the NCAA and universities using athletes' name, image, and likeness for profitability, and the athlete gets zero. So it's a, it's a very interesting discussion that I could have all day long with <laughs> specific case studies in the sport of gymnastics. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it it kind of all comes down to like your supporting system. And at the very least, even if you don't have that with, you know, your family or your coaches, you would expect the national governing body to, because the way you described it, like doing the math, like how much you would need to like, if you can't compete in college, but still want to be able to pay for college, it's very simple math. You would think that, you know, the our governing body would be better at like, hey, like if it all really is about money for you, you people then just negotiate better for your athletes. So, (laughs) but. And it's very timely actually that we talk about this, that this is a subject right now because with the NCAA basketball tournament and the major inequities with the the weight room that were exposed Mm -hmm. and then agents and players in the sports world stepping in and stepping up and say, Hey, like this is also incumbent upon the sponsors to step up and say, hey, here's the money. Here's the ethos of our company. Here's our cult- the culture of this company. We're pushing dollars to you. You need to make this right. This, this needs to be a fair playing field. So, for example, and then drilling that down to a sponsor level for an individual athlete, like, isn't that a, a story that resonates more of you saying, and I'm just throwing Nike out there for, as an example, in terms of a brand everyone knows, like, hey, Nike, if Nike's coming to the table, but hey, here's a million dollar contract because we know you're probably going to win a gold medal, but also we know and we are here for empowering young athletes and champions of life, not just their sport. So we know that this is going to go further than your Olympic podium. And we are supporting that story and that initiative as well. And so it's like, it's incumbent upon them to have the foresight of like, Hey, million bucks, one Olympic cycle, you're done after the Olympic games. Now we're going to take a vested interest in you becoming a successful student and budding young entrepreneur and maybe even CEO of a company one day. Like that story is resonates so much more than just, oh, the the money and metal space. Yeah. And yeah. it's just authentic to where brands and companies need to be going right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, that's such a great point. <laughs> um I get so enraged because I I see the opportunity that I was afforded by having an education and having a support system that enabled that and the opportunity to go through it. And very quickly after sport understood that that is not uh, an option for a lot of people. So it's like, okay, if that, if that's not the option, how do we make, like, how do we create sustainability for these athletes who are literally killing themselves in practice and in training? And then overnight they're nothing. Their, their identity is gone um, because they're just done with their sport. How are we setting them up, if not through educational endeavors of business training or technical training or other internships or da-da-da-da and preparedness for life after sport? 
which thankfully last year through the weight of gold that was brought to the forefront as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely coming up in the conversation at a good time, maybe later than it should have, but yeah, I mean, I agree. It's definitely like something you're seeing, we're seeing a lot of athletes who didn't even necessarily like didn't win medals or necessarily even make the Olympics, but there's, there's still, and you know, thankfully with the use of social media, there still have a lasting presence and impact. And thankfully, like that is like something that's more of a possibility for them, you know, in the long term. because very few gymnasts can bank on one performance for us to rely like Mary Lou and Nadia could do it. Simone, I'm sure is going to just, <laughs> you know, she'll be Simone Biles forever and be able to just capitalize on mm-hmm. all the hard work. And, but, you know, you shouldn't have to get to that top pinnacle to be, you know, to kind of make the most of, of everything you've accomplished in the sport. I actually want to ask you one last thing, cause I know we're getting up to, close to like an hour. If I may um, ask you, um, you've talked about, you know, coming out as gay in the sport and you are taller and long limbed. And you also talked about in the interview, I mentioned about, you know, being the only black person in mm. your family. So you are, you know, and as somebody who's a minority herself and female, and again, this is something that I don't, you know, if you don't want to, some people don't like to put the spotlight on those issues. So I totally understand if you don't want to, but my question. Oh no, it is, it is my responsibility. So ask okay. away. <laughs> awesome. So in many ways you've been like, kind of like a triple minority, like in the sport. I'm a triple threat. I'm black, Asian, <laughs> and gay. <laughs> oh my God. Whoever listens to this is going to have a field day. <laughs> and, and, and you're tall, like as a, as a male gymnast. So that's another thing. And I want to ask you if, if you did, and this is only like, I'm kind of filtering this question through my own experience, because I would say from, for myself and I wasn't an, an elite athlete. And so I wasn't necessarily like in the spotlight, but it took me a long time. I believe I was already like 30 by the time I fully acknowledged that I had really downplayed all of my differences. I didn't like standing out. I didn't accept it and like really make the most of it and see it in a positive way. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. how you went from framing all of these things, if you did, because maybe you were always aware and proud. And I think that's amazing if, if that was always how you framed it. But if you, mm-hmm. if you had to learn to frame all of these things that made you a quote unquote minority and quote unquote different, like how did you really get to the point where you saw those things as positives and things where you were going to be proud of them and, and let yourself shine and not like in my case, like I hid from it for a long time. I didn't, I didn't even like being Indian for a long time. And it wasn't something I was really consciously aware of for like, until I was older. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, kind of from the framing or just contextually for reference for anyone listening who doesn't know this. Myself, my older sisters, were all adopted. We're all technically related. Um, we have the same biological mother, all different fathers. Um, and then our adopted parents, by sheer coincidence, our mom is also Japanese and our dad is white. So my older sisters are half white, half Japanese, half white, half Japanese, and then I'm half black, half Japanese. And then our, our parents are white dad, Japanese mother. So 
that's that's the playing field. And then in terms of diversity and inclusion, growing up in a very diverse family and then in a community in the Bay Area where kind of diversity reigns supreme, like if if we didn't like we were accustomed everywhere. It's like okay, like boys, girls, black, Asian, Indian, Hispanic, like white, you're gonna see it all, like in every classroom and every literally every classroom, every sports league, every every environment that you're in, you're you are seeing that diversity. So you're just in it. And so there isn't a need to really teach, oh, this is what it should look like because that's just what it was. And then going to university, I actually really didn't see the lack of diversity or diverse faces until I moved to Colorado, specifically Colorado Springs, where you are in an Olympic training center bubble in a very kind of conservative city where it's just white people all over. Um, and I was like, oh shit, like, like, where's all the Asian people? Where are all the Asian people at? Like, what? Um, and then being at the highest level of sport at that time, like, I would I'd look back and like, oh shoot, like, there was literally only one black person on my club team. That was me. There was one black person at Stanford, like, over the past 11 years in the gymnastics program. That was me. Um, there were a couple other Asian Pacific Islanders and one Indian guy I was like, Oh, what? Like, Holy crap. Like I've been living in La La land or like, I've just been in inclusive environments. And so that when, now that I'm not at 22 years old to 26, 27, I'm seeing that that in itself was a privilege. And then being at competitions where, I remember so vividly we were training at the training center, a club team came up, a bunch of black kids, and the coach was like, Josh, you and John being at this level and being very visible through your sport and through showing and speaking out on diversity and inclusion, whether that's in the LGBT space or just representation matters space. Like this is very powerful for my boys who all look up to you guys who say, Oh, we want to be like Josh, or we want to be like John. I was like, holy shit. Like the, these are like eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds who, when I was looking up to like, Oh, I want to be like Vitaly Sherbo because he's a brilliant gymnast. I want to be like that. Like they are even thinking and dreaming that big because they see people who look like them at places where they now see are not attainable or that are attainable, which previously was not celebrated or recognized. And Gabby obviously did a brilliant job in, in doing that as well. Dominique Dawes, like in a sport specific to gymnastics where it's privatized, typically pretty expensive and not always accept, accessible to kids because there's a price tag there. So that even more so is important to celebrate the diversity and inclusion that needs to be represented in specifically sports. It's like, come on guys, sports is the great unifier. If we're not showing these names and faces and colors and backgrounds, like what the hell are we all doing here? Because 
that that is the power of sports outside of the arena. And that's what galvanizes so many people and attracts so many people to sports because it's a safe space to celebrate these differences while also wanting to slit each other's throat to win a gold medal. But that's, that's an accepted competition. Um, gymnastics, we're not slitting anyone's throat. Uh, but yeah, so in terms of the, the framing, that, that was kind of how I saw it even all the way through my collegiate existence and then recognized that, oh, like these are the differences that you bring to the table. And by not even by not speaking about it or by not stepping out front on some of these questions or interviews, I like to think sometimes like, oh, am I precluding the next LeBron James from really dreaming that big of like, oh, shoot, there's a black guy up there. I want to do that. It's like if I'm helping inspire whichever athlete or even if they're not an athlete, just by being present that is enough for me or it makes me very happy to do so because and then putting it full circle the opportunity that i was born into um and kind of knowing that if not for my adopted parents my life would have gone a very different direction so that was the gift and opportunity from birth and so like i 100% need to do whatever to enable that option, that ability to dream and do and execute for anyone else. Yeah, I think that's great. And, you know, I really admire how outspoken you have been. And, you know, you say you see it as a responsibility and it's it's certainly one that you're living up to. So, you know, I think that's really awesome and great. I do have to ask this one last question because one of my listeners wanted to know, like, who did you grow up admiring or like who are some of the the gymnasts or athletes that have inspired you mm. um da, 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 da. so uh, gymnastics wise vitaly sherbo obviously just re-watching and re-watching the 92 olympic games where he just killed everyone um he's like holy crap like first of all how can someone physically do that and second of all how can someone look that good doing like it was like just so perfect what he was doing Continuing on the gymnastics line, I was also very fortunate to be in a pretty good club program environment in the Bay Area. There were two gymnasts, and California just has a lot of good gymnastics programs, but there were two older guys who were, I think, three, four years ahead of me that I would always see them at competitions, like, oh my God, like they are perfect, like Kyson, Bunthuang. Kyson and Kyle, but Kyson is the older brother, like longer, taller, skinnier, like just so elegant in what he was doing and having that example literally 45 minutes down the road or if we'd ever did training camps and just seeing and learning from, he was, he was four, four years period of time, he was the best junior athlete in the country. Um, Brian Del Castillo, same thing, he was in Southern California, but they were pipelined into, oh, we're going to put you, we're going to send you to Japan as a representation of what gymnastics looks like in the United States at the junior level. And so having that gold standard learning and seeing it firsthand was very valuable and impressionable to me as like, how do I want to curate or show my work 
and I wanted it to look like them. Um, and then other athletes, I'm actually uh, a huge tennis fanatic. If anyone talks anything I do on social media, but um, I love tennis just because it's the like you can go harder, you can scream, you can you're literally trying to disrupt what someone else is doing on the court, but also I need to stay present in your own game. So it's a, it's a match of what we're taught and learned in gymnastics, but you're adding the, the opponent to it. And it's just a beautiful game. So I always looked up to William sisters, like the beauty and elegance of Federer on court, the intensity of Rafael Nadal and just like the, and seeing them in the pressure packed environments that mimic an Olympic trial national championships uh that solo moment um and also what they've done outside of the sport so i have if if there are more sports icons and idols that i look up to as well a lot of tennis players for a myriad of reasons yeah that's so interesting i never thought about that about how it combines the solo aspect but you're allowed to go hard and and yell and and get mad and would you can't (laughs) in gymnastics yeah so awesome well, Josh, thank you so much for your time. It was really great talking with you and really understanding men's gymnastics in a much more specific way than I really ever have. Where mm. people find you on social media so that they can follow you and like, and because yeah, you're doing a whole bunch of stuff, which we didn't even really get to, but I'm sure if people ah, yeah, follow we you. Could, we could, that could be another episode. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Just in terms of my social media stuff, it's, I was like, this is where is it a shameless plug of hey guys slide into my dms (laughs) (laughs) you can plug anything you want (laughs) uh i would just say i think my social handles are at josh dixon on most everything and i'm i'm fairly accessible i'm i'm on there when we built out a business and consulting group using those channels so um yeah it's been it's been fun it's a cool way to substantively connect with people and brands and companies but also the thirst traps get thrown in there every once in a while just because (laughs) i am a millennial so what can you say yeah i mean hey if you got it flaunt it i (laughs) i'm not i'm not great at that i don't really post any thirst traps but you know everybody should if you can one (laughs) (laughs) you can follow josh on instagram at josh dixon and on twitter at josh n dixon they're in the show notes Thanks for listening to this episode of Better Late.